Wednesday, February the 14th, 2024. Happy Valentine's Day. And on this Ash Wednesday, remember that from dust you are made, and to dust you shall return. And let us gather together and experience the goodness of God. I'm Pastor Trey Comstock. We'll begin with our scripture of the week, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9, and a piece by me entitled Peter and James and John. Then Pastor Emily Larson and I will talk scripture, and more specifically, how to build a faith grounded in real human life that can carry us through the valleys. But first, a reading from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Peter and James and John get a front row seat to the grandeur of God. As with the crowd at Jesus' baptism, they witness God claiming Christ as God's Son and see Christ's place in the context of the other great leaders and prophets, Moses and Elijah. Christ's transfiguration serves as a declaration of Christ both serving an ancient role of prophet and doing it in an even bigger way as God's beloved Son. These three disciples get pulled along for the ride. They also show up at Christ's most human moment, too. After the Last Supper, Jesus withdraws to the Garden of Gethsemane, literally a place where olives got crushed, to do his own soul-crushing. It takes along three friends, who turn out to be rather useless by continually falling asleep. These same three then witness Christ's arrest. It's, once again, Peter and James and John. Peter becomes the most famous, Christ declared him the rock on which the church gets built, and that comes to pass. Acts the Apostles dedicates a lot of airtime to Peter's exploits, leading the church, boldly preaching, getting arrested, breaking out, and coming to understand the inclusion of the Gentiles. Even after Luke stops recording, we have a fair amount of historical evidence that Peter goes on from Jerusalem to Rome, becoming the first bishop of Rome, supposedly getting martyred hung upside down on a cross, and getting buried where St. Peter's Basilica now stands. Excavations of the catacombs under the modern St. Peter's Basilica found ancient graffiti stating, Peter is here. We don't know verifiably which tomb, but the Galilean fisherman became a bold leader of a movement that continues unbroken to this day. Catholic, Orthodox, and Episcopalian ordinations can all trace themselves back in a continuous lineage to Peter the Rock. James gets more easily forgotten, but the fault lies with Herod Agrippa, not the disciple. 
Luke writes much fewer words dedicated to James, but the one post-ascension scene that we do get packs a punch. In Acts 12, he gets violently martyred by Herod Agrippa, as it says in Acts 12 verses 1 through 3. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of unleavened bread. James dies by the sword in perhaps a bid for popularity by the bloody and paranoid Herod dynasty. He was the first of the twelve to die by martyrdom, and only the second martyr, after Stephen, reported in Acts. As modern Christians, it doesn't give us a ton to go on, but I think that it hints at a boldness in his ministry. Stephen got killed for turning into a public prophet. Peter and John only miraculously dodge imprisonment and death for their public preaching. To die by the sword of Herod might indicate that James's ministry grew sufficiently prominent to draw Herod's attention. John grows into one of the gospel's most important proclaimers. John gets the distinction of being the only disciple there at the crucifixion and receiving from Christ the responsibility to care for Mary, his mother. As with Peter, the first half of Acts tells of his exploits preaching, getting arrested, and arguing before the council. However, a survey of the titles of the books of the New Testament remind us that John too kept working long after Acts 28. Five books, Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation all bear his attribution. Scholars debate the particulars on this. Did John write every word, or did he train a school of theologians to write with one theological and literary voice? Either way, out of John's work comes our best explanation of the big picture of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. A communication of the good news in a Greek-friendly rapper, a declaration of the centrality of love in God's work and the Christian life, and a picture of God's final victory and our opportunity to share in that victory if we can just hang in there. None of our texts give us any firm indication why Jesus took these three men up that mountain or into the garden with him. We know that Peter was Christ's chosen rock, John was the disciple that Jesus loved, James was John's brother, and thus Jesus' cousin. Did Jesus see their potential and thus give them extra opportunities like any good teacher with promising students? Did Jesus, as a fully human man, simply feel closer or more at home with these three men? Did Jesus know that to achieve what each was called to do, that they would need a clear view of the big picture? While we don't know why they ended up in these situations, I believe that we can see the impact that their experiences had on them. Peter and James and John ended up dedicating their lives to push forward the gospel, and these three specifically had an outsized impact on the church's future. The totality of what they experienced propelled them into a ministry that dominated their remaining existences. They had a testimony that they felt compelled to share. They saw the most. 
and what they saw changed them. This, to me, gets at the definition of true faith, an encounter with God so compelling that it changes how you live. Peter and James and John had one of the clearest encounters with God of anyone in the New Testament, and we can trace the impact of that across the rest of their lives. So as you just heard in the piece, I took, certainly in the like the piece you just heard, I took the transfiguration in not a particularly like transfiguration-y uh, way, right? Like, <laughs> we... We tend to, and it makes sense, it's kind of the, the headline of this text, take this as, this is another place where God claims Jesus and shows the, like, big picture of what Jesus is doing. And, and I think that under underrides um, or underlies everything that I kind of, everything I talked about based on, this piece, based on the scripture this week, but was not the, like, level of analysis that I primarily used. So in the piece, <laughs> it is these three guys, A, it occurred to me that like these three guys show up a lot. And as that pair, as that threesome, right? As Peter and James and John. Mm. And then if you trace the whole thing out, I could go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I know that like Peter goes on to have this illustrious career. Um, or, you know, this really important career, we can tell that John, um, again, whether you take it that John physically wrote all the things attributed to him, or whether it you take the kind of more scholarly approach that he trained a school of scholars, either way, like, he has this, like, tremendous impact on the shape of Christian theology, in the way that Peter right. has this tremendous impact on the shape of the ch capital C church. And then I had to go, wait, what about James? Now, this is where I have to um, you know, out myself a little bit, right? So I, I walked the Camino de Santiago three times. That is this James, James the Greater. Um, mm -hmm. And so I should have known, like I should have remembered, right? Like I know that they all, like in Catholic tradition, die. Um, and I had this back in my mind that something happened to him in Acts. I had to look it up. And yeah, he just gets killed. The other thing we get is that he gets killed. So then I, right. you know, as you heard, like I go into a little bit of supposition, why did he get killed? They didn't all get killed immediately. Uh, and so maybe uh, it was he is doing a lot that just doesn't get written down, right? We're kind of really limited on what Luke reports. Right. And he did something prominent enough for him to be a public enough follower of Jesus, um, follower of the way, uh, to get killed by Herod. Um, I, I like the, I like the line in Acts that is just like, basically, and then Herod found out like people really liked that. And then he was going to go and kill more people. And I'm just like, geez, Louise, Herod are not great. Right. Right. Um, happy Mardi Gras, by the way. Yeah, you know, it is. Random side note. It, it is, is Mardi Gras. Both. That both, Tuesday. But both as we record this and as we, hopefully as we post this, this may <laughs> not go up until Ash Wednesday, but as we record this, um, it is, uh, Mardi Gras. Yes. Happy Mardi Gras, friends. Um. It is. But yeah. But go ahead. It is interesting to, to juxtapose this, uh, because, and especially in, I guess in the sermon, you really took it more into the. Um, the realm of sitcom world, which yes. was kind of fun to listen to. If you haven't listened to the sermon, go back and, and watch it um, on our YouTube page or our Facebook page. Um, it really is really fun this week. Um, but I like that you put 
this great big huge transformation of Jesus Christ in this big holy moment into the everyday, yeah. right? Into the normal. Um, so we have, you know, today we have Mardi Gras, this great big huge celebration in a lot of places in the world. Um, but also it's the beginning of Lent. It's also Ash Wednesday. It's also our everyday. It's remembering that we're dust um, and to dust we return. So it's it's this juxtaposition of, yes, there are these great big holy things. Um, and also they are real and present in our everyday lives. Right, but also Jesus doesn't like almost immediately stops being transfigured. Right. Like right. the actual, and this isn't, ju- this is actually an astounding amount of detail for Mark. I was uh, <laughs> rereading uh, the baptism and temptation of Jesus is like three sentences in Mark. It's like this long. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. tiny. Uh, Cause I was like, Oh, am I going <laughs> to preach on that? I'm not. I'm gonna, I was working on building the Lenten series just in time. Um, and so I was looking at Mark's telling of the baptism. Um, and I also realized the lectionary doesn't even use Mark's ending, Mark's resurrection story. It uses John. Uh, because right. like, Mark gives more detail in the transfiguration than he does in the baptism, temptation, or the resurrection. So this is yep. like a heavy amount of investment for Mark. Um, uh-huh. But even in this like thing that Mark is deeply invested in, clearly... It, because it is like ties in. He really cares about what gets in scholarly terms called the messianic secret, right? That like, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, but don't tell anybody. This happens in all right. the gospels. It's really a prominent refrain in Mark. We get it here mm-hmm. um, in verse nine. Um, but anyway, so like Mark tells the story. He even gives like character detail, like internality right. of Peter. He didn't even know right. what they to say. They didn't know what to say. Yeah. They didn't even know what to say. Right. <laughs> so this is like, again, a heavy amount of narrative for Mark. Because like the temptation mm-hmm. is like, and then he was tempta- tempted by the devil. Moving on. Right. And even here, <laughs> it's a moment. And then he goes back to the, the refrain. Jesus goes back to being with the refrain. Jesus, the yeah. Son of a carpenter, yeah, the, fully uh, human. Semi-homeless, uh, you know, semi-homeless rabbi, son of a carpenter. Yep. Right? Semi-homeless <laughs> traveling rabbi, son of a carpenter. Mm-hmm. And immediately in the rest of chapter 9, it is church, con- you know, interreligious conflict and uh, healing of a uh, epileptic kid. And, like... I read in Peter's, I, I think a lot about Peter's line, right? Hey, we're up this mountaintop. Let's build a retreat center. Um, right. It's a joke I tell <laughs> once a year, every year, but it is how I think about the transfiguration is, hey, this is great. Let's build a retreat center. Um, right. And in, hey, this is great. Let's build a retreat center. For Peter, I get the like, maybe it's going to always be like this. Maybe this is the thing. Maybe it's going to be all, I know, like in, in chapter eight, Jesus is talking about like, hey, I'm going to die, right? Um, that is another thing we almost used for Lent. Uh, realize we're going to use no mark this Lent. Um, and because, huh. Well, because, anyways, um, for reasons. Um, but in uh, it actually comes up later in the lectionary. If, if you use the gospel text, the end of chapter 8 is Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to die. Hey, you need to take up the cross and follow me. Um uh, hey, by the way, you know, this is like a, a you know, this generation ain't great. Um, so it is this, he's already said, this is how this is going to break. But, you know, also now, you know, Peter and James and John get this moment of tremendous grandeur. And it's really easy to think, okay, yeah, cool. 
this is finally we've broken through. This is how it's going to be. Oh my goodness. Awesome. <laughs> Tremendous. And then um, basically snap your fingers, right? Back to reality. Back to reality. Back to reality. It's just Jesus it, standing there. It really is. It's so have you it's it's a Julia Roberts moment from Eat Pray Love. <laughs> have yeah. you have you watched Eat yes. Pray Love? So on the pray part of Eat Pray Love, she's sitting there and she's trying to meditate and she can't focus and she's like, I'm just thinking about how I can decorate my meditation room. Like she's yeah. completely kind of missed that that's the let's build a retreat center <laughs> part, right? That's the okay, we've arrived, we're here, but wait, we're we're still kind of missing. You know, part of the point. And these are the same three that that went with Jesus to the garden, right? That go with Jesus to the garden and also kind of miss out on, you know, what's happening there because they fall asleep. So, yeah, it's just very much this back to earth, back to reality moment of. And also there's the humanity of Jesus. There's also the humanity of Jesus. And also what is the goal of this, all of this grandeur? Like what? Mm -hmm. I think that is. um I think that's part of it too. Part of the transfiguration is not just that Jesus is God, but also that Jesus is here to like this grandeur is here on earth to do something. And that something is very gritty. And that something is um, very Very human, very human, (laughs) very painful um, Mm -hmm. that this is uh, showing the kind of two levels of analysis, right? You get you get to see Jesus um, uh, in the two in, in basically you know the totality of Jesus gets put on display for a second, um, fully divine, and then back to semi homeless traveling rabbi son of a carpenter, um, and then mm-hmm. back down off the mountain to go do a thing and you know i i took the sermon you know it was about sitcoms um it was about you know <laughs> you know the the line from front the the thing from friend someone once told you life was going to be this way right like right and then you clap it's it a, is it's, it's a it's right pavlov stock um yeah uh-huh. it is <laughs> it is also the transfiguration is a lot of the gospels um are foreshadowing the crucifixion um but in a real way, also just foreshadowing the real grittiness that was Christian life, certainly for its first 300 years. Um, mm-hmm. We recorded Certainly the, for the original yeah, readers of Mark. For the original. For certain. Yeah, for certain, right. You know, um, we don't quite know Mark's audience, but, you know, the early Christians, the early people who are encountering all of these writings – um, you know, this is, we talked about this recently when we talked about church structures. It's the same deal, right? They didn't have, you know, we talked about, you know, in Corinthian, I guess it was last week. Um, I don't know. I've slept since then. Um, <laughs> say enough things in the microphones, you just don't know. But, like, talk about, like, Paul being all things to all people. Yeah, he didn't have the luxury of property on Main Street. Um, right. He didn't have those luxuries. And so if we think about living our faith, I think what this series has been about and that these series, what I hear in these series of scriptures is some of our problem that for the life of faith and looking around at the state of the world is we got the wrong, we got the wrong expectations Mm -hmm. um, about 
what it was always going to look like, how it was always going to work, how we were going to be able to navigate within it. Um, you know, we talk, we've recorded these out of order, so we've already talked to Todd Bolsinger for our How Do We Start a Church uh, <laughs> segment uh, that will air on Friday. But we talked to him about, you know, that his whole, like, call to uh, this, this version of leadership, of teaching leadership, is we plan for this world of Christendom, and then we ended up not in this world. We ended up in this world of post-Christendom. And mm-hmm. we didn't have the leadership skill. We weren't teaching the leadership skills um, to do that. I think all of that right. is wrapped up in uh, we got really used to the grandeur and kind of forgot why all of that grandeur ended up on earth in the first place. Right. We grew up with the expectations of generations previous that we would live in this world where church attendance was mandatory and this is the thing that people did. And now we live in a world that is completely different. Um, We grew up in a world where this grandeur, where this retreat center that we're supposed to live in with Elijah and Moses (laughs) exists, um, except that it doesn't, and that that wasn't the point. Well, in some ways, um, I, I think you draw the, the right comparison, that what we really did is we um, ended up on the mountaintop and we built retreat centers. Yeah. Um, and then we wondered why the world wasn't having the same experience that we were. Um, right. and we, then we, then, and then we go into panic mode and we say a lot of things about the church is dying and, um, you know, the wickedness of this generation, which by the way, um, chapter eight ends with, uh, Jesus talking about the wickedness of that generation. So like, you know, looking around, <laughs> so it's not just the generation, yeah, looking maybe. around the world and thinking, <laughs> you know, this, these people are the worst is a tale as old as dime. Well, um, but even even just our Christian experiences growing up, you know, so often we talk about like being on the mountaintop and we go on a retreat or a walk or a camp or a something yep. and we're on the mountaintop and we're so close to God and we're, you know, really living the dream. And then we come back to our realities of yeah. everyday life and we forget what the mountaintop was like or we forget um, that that grandeur is still here is still with us in human form in or in us right that that kingdom of god is still at work is still being built here on earth um but we forget it because we're not on the mountaintop because we're in the regular mundane everyday life and and because we forget how much like hardship they all went through yes right um this but is it's not all sunshine and roses. Well, this was the, this sermon, and I think that this uh, this take on the transfiguration is also a subtle ad for things like Ash Wednesday, for things like Good Friday, um, and why I th- think those things are profoundly important. Not because, not just because we've been doing them for a long time, you know. Um, listen to anything we say, and it's a lot of like, eh, do we really need to do that? But nah. because you you force yourself into the other parts of the story, particularly Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, mm-hmm. you put yourself into the harder parts of it. You un- start to understand. You Maybe you know in your mind, right? But you give yourself an experience again of, oh, right, Jesus died. And for a while, 
the disciples didn't know if he was going to rise again. He does mm-hmm. rise again. But, like, we, uh, when we skip Good Friday and go straight to Easter, we forget about the, like, the the difficulty, the, the like, that it was The darkness that the darkness, overcame the It wasn't the world. all just, like, grandeur. Because if you just skip across, like, Transfiguration, Palm Sunday, Easter, Pentecost, Christmas. Right. But you skip the Ash Wednesdays and the Good Fridays and the, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, what the Christian year does, when you kind of take it in its totality, and it really is like six months of Christian year and six months of ordinary time, but the usefulness to me of the Christian year as a person who, you know, does not just value tradition for the sake of tradition and yet really invests um, the you know first six months of the year in first six months of the Christian year, December to May ish um, in following the points of the Christian year is mm-hmm. you go through the story, you go through all the parts of the story. Jesus is yeah. yet born and baptized, but also killed, <clears throat> tortured, right? Um, you get Easter and Pentecost, but you also get the like that moment, you know, the Jesus. I, I love, you know, we're gonna we'll get there, but we I love the ascension to Pentecost, right? Because the ascension sermon is not, you know, it's like, yeah, Jesus ascends to heaven. Oh my god. And that's to me not what the ascension is about. The ascension is about like, what are we gonna do? That feeling of like, <laughs> what are we going okay, to do? Okay, okay, now what? Okay, now now, now okay, what? Okay, now what? Um, I think, you know, once I did, I can't remember if it was an Ascension or uh, um, an Easter service <clears throat> where I had a group of people who might know who the Power Rangers or who might know who Captain Planet is. Um, it's not our current crew. Um, and I entitled the sermon, The Power is Yours, right? Like what happened, you know, I understand that Jesus is far better than Captain Planet, but you know, I was, uh, I was a child. And it really is that moment where like Captain Planet now uh, goes dissolves into mist and goes the power is yours um and you go what are we supposed to do now right now what like i i i i hear the criticisms of that kind of really dark and gloomy christianity right um you know i also didn't grow up in a church full of crucifixes um although this starts to get at the point the theological point of crucifixes um what if every time you like you know why is our symbol the cross that was an instrument of torture friends um like i i don't i don't you know i don't want this religion to be all sadness and guilt and pain but i also feel like we are at risk of creating a religion a take on these scriptures that leaves no room um, for life to kind of suck sometimes. And that if you, you know, look around and that everyone else is, you know, maybe this is just the kid on depression, kid with depression, you know, writes about the life of faith. This is my life of faith. A lot of the time is you look around and go like everyone else is stoked. And what do you do when you're not like stoked when it's just not, when you're not having the experience that everyone else is, the actual answer is, the Bible told you life might be this way sometimes. Um, and uh, Jesus leaves the mountaintop. Um, you know, the grandeur of God, you know, becomes a semi-homeless traveling rabbi, son of a carpenter. Yes. And I, I, I mean, I think it's important, though, because 
we do need to remember that it's not all just prosperity gospel because we have a lot of that out in the world, Mm -hmm. but it's also not a faith that's just based on your feelings um, and your emotions. It's not just something that's based on those mountaintop highs and experiences. Um, Those are important, obviously, but, but you also have to remember that Christ and your life of faith exist in those times where sometimes it just be like that. (laughs) Sometimes it's just not great. Right. Um, Sometimes life just be like that. And, and that's okay. That does not indicate a lack of faith or a lack of Christ's working in the world or a a lack of, of God moving in the world for the better now. Or it doesn't mean that God's losing. Right. Right, It doesn't mean that we're losing. Right. Cause this is the underlying, like if you stop and, really think about the doom and gloom and Mm -hmm. i I think about this a lot because i read about this a lot because you know (laughs) we do the work of trying to build build churches right like i I read a lot of this and i you know we have a whole spinoff podcast where i make you look at scary statistics because we we should (laughs) not just statistics but but yeah like you know um this is one of the underlying one of the underlying threads of this series is we to for and the the revelation series and actually that we're wrapping up too in bible study um is that it's not always going to look like we're winning and that's okay god Mm -hmm. still wins god is still at work but sometimes the work of god is going to look like a, a you know a semi homeless rabbi traveling rabbi son of a carpenter healing a boy of epilepsy and sometimes right. um god winning in the end this is revelation it's going to look like most of the world worshiping the beast and you know deeply hating anything we have to say <laughs> and and sometimes it's going to look hard in your personal life. And sometimes it's going to look hard for your congregation. Yep. Sometimes it's going to look hard for the church capital C, you know, the church universal. Um, but that doesn't mean that we give up, right? Well, if you do flip to the very end of Revelation, we still win. We're still, We're win. still winning, well, right? And, and I think, <laughs> and maybe I'm not sure I'd, I'd drawn this connection until now, a lot of the work of a pastor sometimes is giving the folks a sense of momentum. And maybe one of my thesis statements here is, maybe we shouldn't need that. Yeah. Um, maybe it's not always going to look like we're building momentum. That doesn't yeah. mean that God is going to, not doesn't mean that God or we are going to lose. Right? Um, this is not, you know, we, I, you know, uh, we, we just we just had the, the Super Bowl, and so you know I, I watched my uh, my one NFL game for the year, um, and I can you know c- cross that off the list and look forward. I to watched the... Taylor Swift. Right, it was mostly what I did too. Was I, uh, right. I, I cheered every time that Taylor came on screen, and I had a Taylor chant. Um, anytime Travis Kelsey um, would do something good on the field, um, I would go cut to Taylor. And this was good. Um, <laughs> anyways, when I watched when I watched Taylor Swift watch the Super Bowl, um, like I understand that like a lot of sports and a lot of sports psychology runs on the uh, runs on momentum, right? You know why does Kansas City win that game? Because um, it's you know literally close. One of the reasons they're able to end up winning is I think they built momentum in the second half. 
that they just had mm-hmm. a fundamentally different second half than first half. Um, and so they could, you know, as they start, you know, they kick the longest field goal in Super Bowl history and they get this momentum. Right. And a lot of church leadership ends up being that some version of that. Hey, let's so like, well, let's get the easy wins. Let's show the momentum. Let's show that this is going somewhere. And all of this is a reminder that it really isn't always going to look like it's going somewhere because certainly Mm -hmm. when Jesus comes back down off the mountain and it all just goes back to normal, it doesn't look like it's going somewhere. Or when Jesus is dead, doesn't look like it's going somewhere. Um, or right. even for the early church, Luke tells the story of the early church in a really positive way, but it took 300 years before they are like this gl- truly global force. Most mm-hmm. of the time, it was this rat, you know, as we talked about a lot, this ragtag group of folks um, barely making it and realizing just in making it that that's God at work. That that's, that's God enough. winning. That yes. that's enough. That like they're making it. That they're reaching some folks. Um, that you know the the Roman Empire didn't roll over in a minute. Mm-hmm. I I like to think of this perspective when um, if you have a congregation in particular who is you know maybe not very many people left, um, or if you have like a youth program for example, and only one kid shows up, I'm like well aren't you doing ministry for the one? Yeah. Right. Like you, you still do the ministry. You still do the work of the building of the kingdom of God. You still, um, do the faith work, do the discipleship work. You do it for one. Right. Um, and, and that's hard in those times when you're like, why am I even doing this? Um, but we do because you do the work for the one you show well, because up there, even it, when it's hard. The, the, some of it, I think we've, uh, God knows we've talked about this before, but we've talked about this before that some of it is a, a call to faithfulness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that God's the one bearing the fruit, not you. And right. the, especially in the world in which we live, um, it's a blessing even to have the one, right? Yep. No one has to come, right? Mm-hmm. Gone or, you know, we don't talk about this on the next podcast, so I can bring this up. Like, gone or, like part of what built Christendom is mandatory church attendance. Part right. of what built Christendom is we were the only game in town. Part of what built mm-hmm. Christendom is for a while we were a world government. Um, <laughs> you know, part of what built Christendom is that the folks couldn't read. And so the only perspective they had on any of this was us, right? Mm-hmm. And so in in this world of a thousand options, million options, right? Um, no one has to be here. No right. one. That the church exists at all still um, given the mistakes we've made and given the other things that people could be doing, look, we are we are in an attention economy. And so that means that in the modern world, we are every day up against Disney, Meta, aka Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, Google, the NFL, Right, we are up like a uh, uh, rest all restaurants. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we are TikTok. Right, we are right. what like what we are in competition with for people because again, like uh, it, it's not even you know um, I have to think a lot about church finance, but that's not actually the limiting factor. 
Um, the limiting factor is everyone only has 24 hours in a day. Yep. And so you got to be the best show in town or. Or the most meaningful show, like, or, or somehow meaningful. meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it is, this, this is not, um, I, again, we, we make fun of the laser light show a lot. Um, I actually like the laser light <laughs> show, right? Um, and, and so, and, you know, and for us, um, as a, you know, medium sized United Methodist church, right? Like, we are competing again, you know, competing for people's attention um, in a, a city of infinite options. Um, mm-hmm. And then an internet of literally infinite options. Yep. So if we start to frame our lives that way, you start to understand. And, and, and we have, you know, I can tell you a lot of things that we haven't done well. But part of what we're up against isn't even the like the normal thoughts of evil. Although I do <laughs> think Facebook is evil. Uh, I don't think all those things are inherently evil. What we're up against is the attention economy mm-hmm. of um, people, the biggest companies in the world, right? Because, you know, it's Apple and Microsoft kind of trade back and forth on that front often. Um, Microsoft owns a video gaming division, and um, Apple makes the devices that, by, by, that are drawing all your attention, right? Mm-hmm. We're up against that. We're up against Disney. We're up against all of these other things that can pull people's time. And that so, only take 10 seconds to watch, right? Well, the other and, thing is, and, and that won't remind you that you're a sinner, right? Like, right. <laughs> only if you that won't to, do the, right? the fat to the Ash Wednesday. It's all fat Tuesday, no Ash Wednesday, right? right. It's all Palm Sunday, no good Friday. Right. And, 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 you know, I understand that argument, but also I understand that, you know, if we can find the right ways to talk about things that like people need to hear that too, because a mm-hmm. lot of people, not just religious people end up in like, Hey, life isn't working out. I don't have the tools for this. And I'm like, yeah, because we just, we've been talking about all this real bad. Um, yeah. and so I, I don't know. Um, I, 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 we also participate in the tension economy, right? Like we all, right. we all do it, but right. it is like for the early church, like they, where they are and where we are, I, I think is more analogous than what we were for the like intervening seventeen hundred years, where the early church is has even less cultural power than we still have, but mm-hmm. is in Roman society one option among many and a very tiny option, um, and a bunch of weirdos, but a bunch of weirdos, <laughs> you're all weirdos. But a bunch we're of, all still weirdos. We're all still weirdos. <laughs> but a yeah. bunch of weirdos that can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can build these amazing, amazing redeeming, transforming communities. Mm-hmm. And that is that's the always been the real work. We just mm-hmm. we got sidelined with, and our expectations got out of whack. And I I think with this series was to help us theologically and scripturally process the like, hey. I think what we need to reckon with here is partly the expectations of how life, of how church, of what this is all going to look like, and mm-hmm. really looked at the lived experience of the people who got this going and understand that God was alive in them, um, that Jesus, at this point, Jesus, and sorry, Jesus walking the earth. And even as mm-hmm. Jesus walks the earth, where does Jesus spend his time? 
the bulk of his time um, traveling, teaching, healing as a semi-homeless traveling rabbi, son of a carpenter. Yep. <laughs> that is as good a place as any uh, uh, to bring us into a landing uh, for uh, this week's scripture uh, conversation. Uh, if you have thoughts about like expectations and, and, and things, you know, when you found out that maybe life was going to be this other way, um, email us, thegoodnessofgodpod at gmail.com. We would love to share your thoughts on the air. If you want more of what we're doing, including, uh, this is a tease because of how time works. Um, it's not how it worked in Emily and I's lives, but it's how it worked for you. Uh, we have a really amazing um, show for you on Friday as well. Not that this show wasn't amazing, but we have uh, Todd Bolsinger, uh, one of the guys who kind of wrote the book, on uh, Christian adaptive leadership. Um, his most famous book is called Canoeing the Mountains. He kind of ends up required reading at like any pastor's like leadership training. Um, and uh, he gave us like 40 minutes of his time uh, to talk not just about the book, but about adaptive leadership and about, you know, how to lead a church in a post-Christendom world, something that I think dovetails really well um, with with this conversation. So if you want to hear, like, someone who actually knows what they're doing um, and has been a part, uh, who is really a leader in um, getting us all to not go in different directions of, like, let's chuck the baby out with the bathwater, but, like, let's have leadership tool sets to lead in this very different world. Uh, tune in on Friday. It should go live um, Friday, 6 p.m., um, and um, it's available in this. If you're listening to this in the normal feed, it's available um, on this normal feed. It will also be on our YouTube channel or our Facebook, whatever. YouTube.com slash Servants Now. Facebook.com slash Servants Now. Uh, we also have TikTok and Instagram um, at Servants Now. Our website, ServantsNow.org. Uh, if you're a video viewer and don't know this, this is available as an audio podcast. Just search The Goodness of God um, in your podcatcher of choice. There are admittedly two shows called that. We're the one with the better logo. Um, if you're an audio listener and want to see what the video version looks like, it's up on our YouTube channel um, or on our Facebook page. Um, everything we do here in the Media Lab is made possible uh, by a generous innovators grant for the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. If you would like to support the show, biggest thing you can do right now, like, comment, subscribe. Um, tell other people and, and share this. Tell other people that this is something that is meaningful to you um, and folks might find meaning in it too. Uh, you can also lead us, leave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. That does actually help. Also, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you next time. Thank you.